If you have your Bibles, which I hope that you do this morning, please open them with me to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. We have been studying the life of a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph, as we have seen, has risen to great power in Egypt. Uh, He has been, in many ways, Egyptianized by Pharaoh, but yet his heart has remained faithful to the Lord. Joseph has helped now to prepare Egypt for a very severe famine in the land. And that famine is now so severe that it extends beyond Egypt to all of the land, which, as we will see today, requires that people from far and wide outside of Egypt come into Egypt, people including Joseph's own family, to come in in order to find grain in order to survive. So that's the context for our passage here today. Let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 42 together. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are not spies. You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, 
in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you, but put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Oh, church family, how, how would you feel if I began this message with a prayer? And if in that prayer I asked God to give you pain this morning? How would you feel if I told you that all week long I had been praying that God would make this morning's sermon almost painfully uncomfortable to everyone who hears it? Church family, full disclosure, as much as I love you and I love you a lot, that is exactly what I have been praying. I have been praying that the next 35 minutes would cause us to be a little bit uncomfortable before God's word. And honestly, I'm not alone in that prayer. One of the commentators that I read this week at the end of his chapter after discussing Genesis 42 prayed this prayer for his readers. He said, may God therefore bless you with guilt, with sorrow, and with fear. Now, why would we ever want to pray a prayer like that? 
That, that prayer does not even seem to be a Christian prayer. Well, as strange as that prayer sounds, I do think that it gets at a right response to the text that is in front of us this morning. Church, you need to know how absolutely thrilled and excited I am to preach Genesis 42 to 50. These eight chapters are so beautiful for us. If there is a single theme or, or primary focus for these final eight chapters in our study of Genesis, that theme or topic would be the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness. We are going to see God's heart to forgive his people throughout these eight chapters in really, truly profound and beautiful ways. And I cannot wait to celebrate that forgiveness with you in the weeks to come. But before we celebrate the joy of forgiveness, we must walk through the pain of conviction and repentance. Forgiveness for our many sins is a glorious and beautiful gift from the Lord, but it is only truly glorious if it also comes with a full and clear and even painful understanding of our sin before God. And that's exactly what Genesis 42 leads us towards. The main idea for our message today is this. The joy of forgiveness comes only through the pain of conviction. The joy of forgiveness comes only through the pain of conviction. And we have three points this morning. Number one, the pain of conviction. Number two, the reckoning of sin. And number three, the joy of forgiveness. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, the pain of conviction. If you, if you ask me, reading through Genesis 42 alone is a painful endeavor. That there is such relational and emotional tension and, and trauma in this chapter. I mean, we, we as the readers almost begin to feel sorry for Joseph's brothers as, as they really don't understand why this seemingly random, powerful leader of Egypt is giving them such a hard time. What did they ever do to deserve his disfavor? And Joseph really is giving them a hard time, isn't he? Look at verse 7. It says that he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Down in verse 30, when his brothers are telling Jacob what has happened, they say to their father, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. Jo Joseph did not take it easy on his brothers. He, he accuses them of being spies, which in that day would have been worthy of the death penalty. In verses 14 to 17, he, he throws them all in prison for three days and threatens to only send one of them back to Canaan in order to find their brother Benjamin. Now, after three days, he, he seems to soften his perspective a little bit, likely because he knows that his father Jacob and his brother's families need food, and so he sends most of them back with provision, but he holds one of them back and puts him in prison. But even that has a sting to it, doesn't it? Even that seems very intentional on Joseph's part because as Joseph takes only one of his brothers and binds him in front of his brothers and throws him into the pit of prison while sending the others back to their father, what is he doing? He's creating, he's recreating the graphic scene that he himself had endured many years before at the hands of his brothers. That the brothers are having to abandon Simeon now just as they had had to abandon Joseph. And then not only that, but as Joseph sends them back to his father, he, he plays with their minds even more. And he, he, he puts their money back into their sacks so that they become even more bewildered, 
even more troubled, even more fearful about what is happening to them during this time. Joseph is, is creating a situation in which the sin of his brothers is being highlighted and brought to the surface. A situation through which they can begin to feel guilt for what they had done to him. Joseph is testing his brothers. We, we see that in verse 14 when it says, by this you shall be tested. There is a testing that is happening here. Jo- Joseph's roughness of, of language towards his brothers, it, it causes emotional and even physical pain, but it is intended to reveal truth about who they really are. The, the testing is to highlight how, how inaccurate Joseph's brother's description of themselves really is. Church, did you notice how they describe themselves in verse 11? They say, we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Church, listen, they may not have ever been spies, but as the readers of this story, we should choke on those words. Honest men? No, they're not honest men. They are incredibly dishonest men, and Joseph, more than anybody, knows how truly dishonest they are. They they can't disguise who they really are. No matter how hard they try to convince themselves, no matter how hard they try to convince Joseph that they are honest men, we as the readers are supposed to know, like Joseph does, who they really are. They have a terrible disguise. You know, their disguise is worse than the wolf from Little Red Riding Hood, right? Their their disguise is worse than Winnie the Pooh trying to act like a rain cloud. Their disguise is worse than the Grinch trying to be Santa Claus. Side note, friends, there's only 26 days left till you can play Christmas music. That's good news. But listen, their claim to be honest men doesn't work. And Joseph already knows who they are. And so he says in verse 16 that their words will be tested. He says in verse 19, if you are honest men, well then prove it. We actually see the word honest repeated five times in this text. The, the honesty of Joseph's brothers is being challenged. Whether they are spies or not is honestly completely irrelevant to the story. As the readers, we are supposed to know that their word is not trustworthy, that they are far from the honest men that they claim to be. Again, Joseph is creating a context. He is establishing a situation in which their dishonesty in which their guilt and which their true character will be revealed. And, and it is so important that this happens. Ultimately, we're going to see beautiful pictures of God's forgiveness being displayed through this relationship of Joseph and his brothers. But in order to get to that picture of forgiveness, Joseph's brothers have to go through the pain of acknowledging their own sin. And Redeemer Fellowship, listen, if we are going to experience the joy of forgiveness from God and the forgiveness from others, we too need to go through the pain of conviction and repentance. Friends, this is the clear and unmistakable pattern of God's word, isn't it? It Isn't scripture, aren't our Bibles rough with us sometimes? I mean, how often have you read the Old Testament and thought, man, God seems angry towards his people in that passage? How many times have you read the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law in the book of Leviticus and wondered, why does God speak so strongly, so so roughly with his people? But do you realize why God has given us the law? 
Do you realize why God seems to speak roughly to his people in the same way that Joseph speaks roughly to his brothers in this passage? It's not because God's ultimate goal is to to just cause needless pain and guilt in your life, though it is oftentimes painful, but his goal is to lead us towards conviction and then towards confession and then towards forgiveness. God knows that we are really good at convincing ourselves that we are not wrong and that we don't need help. Aren't we good at that? Aren't we good at really convincing ourselves and deceiving our own hearts into believing that all is well and there's nothing that we need to be convicted about in our lives? But God, our Heavenly Father, loves us enough to not let us remain in that place of deception. No, He gives us His Word. He gives us His law. He gives us the standard of His own holiness. And that is a test towards us. Just like this test for Joseph's brothers. And the Word of God tests us whether we are honest, godly, or righteous people or not. And guess what, church? None of us, none of us pass the test. And not only does God tell us that we haven't passed the test, he tells us that there is a reckoning for our many sins. That there is a cost. That a payment needs to be paid for our transgressions. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, the reckoning of sin. Please look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21 is so important in this chapter. It says about the brothers, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Isn't that interesting? They do not know that Joseph is standing right in front of them. They have no idea who this leader is. In fact, other than, other than just having recalled that they have a father in Canaan with a younger brother with him and another brother who is no more, other than that, they have zero reason to be thinking about Joseph or what they have done to Joseph. But yet their immediate response to the painful circumstances that they are going through is to say, oh man, all of this is because of what we did almost 20 years ago to our 17-year-old brother. Isn't that interesting? that it comes so quickly to their minds. Isn't it also interesting in verse 21 that they recall that they saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. (sighs) This is a big deal. Friends, if you remember back in chapter 37 when they had thrown their little brother Joseph into the pit in order to die, it says that they just sat down and ate a meal. They left Joseph in a pit with no water to die on his own. And then they moved a few feet away and sat down and ate a meal together. Back in chapter 37, it seems so callous. It seems so cold-hearted. But here in chapter 42, we learn that that moment was actually seared on their minds. They, They remember it clearly. They apparently sat down to eat a meal, but it wasn't a quiet meal. Apparently, Joseph, their little brother, was screaming from the pit, Reuben, Levi, Naphtali, Simeon, Gad, Asher, don't leave me down here. Don't, no, don't, don't, don't go away. Come back. I, I don't want to die. I'll do anything you say. Please, please come back. But they had ignored his desperate cries for mercy. Can you imagine being so cold-hearted that you ignore your 17-year-old brother's cries for his life. 
But as tough as they all wanted to appear before each other on that day, as much as each of them wanted to convince the others that Joseph's pleas for mercy didn't affect them at all, in this moment, in chapter 42, over 20 years later, it's clear that the distress of Joseph in that moment still haunts every one of their souls. Church, isn't that the way that it is with our own sin? When we ignore our sin or try to convince ourselves into thinking that our sin is not that big of a deal, no matter how hard we try, the truth is still within us. Our souls know that we are wrong before God. Listen, if you are a non-Christian today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to know that God's word says, and I agree with God's word, God's word says that you know deep inside of you that there is a God and that you have sinned against that God. And God's word says very clearly that you as an unbeliever are actually actively suppressing that truth in order just to act as if things are okay. But your heart truly knows who you are before God and his holiness. Or maybe you are a Christian here today and while you know that you are accepted by God through Christ and that you are secure in him through the gospel, you also have sin in your life that you have never specifically confessed before God or before others, and it haunts you. It, it dissettles and distresses your soul, even as they are distressed in verse 22. You're on one word from somebody about a certain topic, and it brings all these haunting thoughts into your mind because of what you've done in the past that you've never confessed before God. Listen, sometimes God allows painful physical circumstances into our lives because he has a spiritual work that he wants to get done in us. Notice how in verses 26 to 28, when, when the brothers are on their way home and one of them finds their money back in their bag and they think that they are in even more trouble than before, their response is not a physical response. No, it's a spiritual response. Look at verse 28. They say, what is this that God has done to us? Isn't that interesting? They, they don't just say, man, this stinks. Let's head back to Egypt and give him the money that we owe him. They didn't just say, this has been a rough week. I can't wait for the weekend to get here. No, they interpret their physical circumstances in a spiritual way. What does that reveal about them? It reveals that their consciences have really never been okay. It reveals that they have felt guilt and conviction and pain over their past mistake. And that no matter how hard they try to ignore that great sin, it hangs like a, like a shadow over their lives. And it reveals that God often uses painful things in our lives to, to get at spiritual truths in us so that we might grow in his grace more and more. Listen, th this testing of Joseph's brothers, it's, it's not revealing anything new about them. They already carried the guilt of their sins on a daily basis, but this testing is being used by God to highlight their guilt and to lead them towards repentance. Look at verse 21 again. They say, in truth, we are guilty. They, they didn't become guilty in this moment. No, they already were guilty, but Joseph's rough words towards them is revealing and reminding them of their guiltiness in a new way. In truth, they are guilty. Church, in truth, we are guilty. 
Even as Joseph says to his brothers, you are spies, and they resist that title. So God's word says to us this morning, you are sinners. And at first we want to resist that label. We don't want to admit our guilt. We want to think that our Christian maturity has taken us beyond our struggle with sin. But the grace of his word reveals to us that we are all truly guilty before him. Okay. Now what? What's the point of this? Why does God seem so eager in his word to remind us of our sin? Does he like us just to feel bad all the time? Is that what he wants? So some of us want to ask the question this morning, Joel, how is feeling guilty ever a good thing? How can personal guilt lead to a better life? But we see how in this text today. Look at verse 22 now. Reuben interprets the circumstances and he says, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Reuben knows that sins before a holy God do not go unpunished. Any sin against a holy God has a penalty that must be paid. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Psalm 5 says of God that he hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There is a reckoning for our sin. There is a cost. No sin goes unpunished. All sin must be paid for. Reuben knows this, and his brothers are beginning to realize it as well. And church, it is the same with us today. The inescapable truth of God's word is that we are sinners and that as sinners, we owe an incalculable debt before God. There is a reckoning for our sin. And no matter how much we want to pretend that that's not the case, it is the case. And we would do well to accept it and to respond to it. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, the joy of forgiveness. Isn't it a terrifying thing to think about the reckoning of our sin? It is terrifying to think that every sin that we have ever committed is seen and known by God. Do you know that? The God of this universe has seen and he remembers everything that you have ever done. God has a really good memory. You know what else has a really good memory? Our phones have a really good memory. I was thinking about this this week and how many pictures we all have on our devices. Personally, I have 19,000 pictures on my phone. And I can scroll through those pictures and take myself all the way back to 2012. Almost a decade of life is captured right here in my hand. I told Ashley this week how many pictures I had, and she said, oh, yeah, I have 19,000 pictures as well. Her 19,000 pictures take her back to, like, last weekend. <laughs> it's a little different between us. But, but isn't it crazy to think about the memories that are, are captured in our hands? You can scroll through your camera, and you can see picture evidence for all kinds of moments in your life, both, both good moments and bad moments. I can scroll back 
four years to October 31st, 2017, exactly four years ago today, and I can remember the moment when I stood in front of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door, celebrating the Reformation on the day that it happened, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That's a great memory. I like that picture. But then I can also scroll through my pictures, and I can find other pictures that I'm not as much a fan of. Pictures like when someone stole my phone when I was asleep. Not a very attractive moment for me. Or pictures like when I was getting my surgery, my knee surgery done. Also not a very attractive picture for me. Those are moments that I would rather forget. Our phones remember both the good and the bad. Unless you work really hard to delete all of the bad pictures, everything can still be seen. Friends, there is no deleting your sins before God. There's no delete all button that removes the sinful moments of your life from God's memory. No, King Jesus can scroll through all of your life and he sees everything. Hebrews chapter 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Romans chapter 14 says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. And this is the point of Genesis 42. Even after 20 years, Joseph's brothers can't hide from their sins. They're being exposed for who they truly are. And this is what God's word does for each and every one of us as well. Friend, God can scroll through every moment of your life and he can see every careless word that you have ever spoken. He can scroll through every detail of your life and he can see in detail every impure thought that you have ever had. He can scroll through your life and he can see video clips of sins that you committed years, even decades before. Isn't that a haunting thought to consider? Doesn't it crush us? The psalmist says, if God was to mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is an emphatic, no one. No one can stand. If God responded to our sin only with his justice and holiness, we would all be crushed by the weight of his wrath. But church, church, though God's word exposes us, God's heart does not want to crush us. He does not only respond with justice and holiness and wrath. He responds with love and mercy and grace. And so listen, friend, if, if God's word has stung you this morning, if through Genesis 42 you are feeling the, the pain of conviction and you know how much you are a sinner and you are reminded of that sinfulness before God's holiness, you need to know that though the pain is very important, God's word would not quickly remove that pain. Though the pain is, is an important part of conviction, it needs to be felt. The pain is not the end of the story. No, there is hope for every sinner here today. Now, there's honestly not a lot of hope in this chapter that we're looking at here today. The Joseph's brothers, they're not turning out very well. Things are not pretty. We will not get to forgiveness, true forgiveness, until chapter 45. 
But I do love how in verse 2, Jacob tells his sons, go down and buy grain for us that we may live and not die. Jacob didn't even fully know what he was doing in that moment, but he was sending his sons to Joseph. Joseph, who had been perfectly positioned by God's providence to save them from death. Think about it. Think about how perfectly positioned Joseph was. He was a Hebrew. He was a son of Israel, a son of Jacob. He knew how to save his people. He wanted to save them because of his love for them. But he was also the right-hand man to Pharaoh. And so he also had the power to actually get the saving done. He is perfectly positioned in these two roles. But friends, Joseph is not the hero of the story. Now, Joseph is only a very faint picture of Jesus. Jesus who became a man like us and who knew in his humanity exactly what we needed to be saved, but who was also the Son of God and who sat at the right hand of God the Father and who therefore had all of the power to actually accomplish salvation for us. This is Jesus, the the, the God-man, holy God and holy man. So that even as we feel the crushing pain of our sins, we can go down to Jesus even as they went down to Joseph so that we might live and not die. So that we might be given grace even as they are given grain to survive. Friends, here's the power of the gospel and it is the joy of our forgiveness. We are not left to die in our sin. We are not left under condemnation and shame. God does not turn his back on us in his holiness. Even as Joseph does not turn his back on his family, God remains with us. God provides grace even as Joseph provides grain. And this is how God has provided that amazing grace by giving us his only son to be the propitiation, to be the payment for our sin. He deals with the reckoning of our sin, and he deals with it on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin for us. Now, don't misunderstand that verse. That does not mean that Jesus actually became a sinner in himself. No, it means that Jesus the pure and spotless and sinless Lamb of God. He bore the weight of our sin. He bore the weight of his brother Judah's sin and his brother Simeon's sin and Levi's sin and Asher's sin and Gad's sin. He bore the weight of the sins of the entire world and he died our death. He dealt with the reckoning of God's wrath against our sins. He absorbed and he fully exhausted God's fury against our sins so that not even a drop of it lands on you this morning if your faith is in him. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that we don't need to hide ourselves or our sins from God at all. We can live fully open lives. You know, I have found that people are very protective about their phones. Many people don't even let their spouse look at their phones. I don't know why. There must be something there that they want to hide. They want to keep their passcode to themselves. Friends, you don't need to keep the phone of your life from Jesus. You can hand it over to him, the whole photo scroll. Just let him look for it, through it. Give him the passcode to it all. 
That, that is what it is to confess sin before God. It is to acknowledge your sin and your need. It is, it is telling Jesus how you are a sinner and then asking him to forgive you from that sin. And the glorious thing about the gospel is that when we come to Jesus in humility and, in, and confess our sins and ask for that forgiveness, King Jesus, who is pure and who has never done a single wrong thing in his entire life, he scrolls through our entire lives and he sees every photo, every dark moment, every painful experience, every sin that we've done and every sin that's committed against us. And he doesn't, he doesn't just remove it from us, he stamps it with the purifying and redeeming blood that he has shed on our behalf. Friends, this is glorious news. This news is obviously of first importance for those who are here today and who do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we don't often do this, but I feel led this morning to say very explicitly, if you have never confessed your sin before God, if you have never asked for forgiveness from King Jesus, this message, Genesis 42, is for you. God's word has hopefully caused you to feel pain this morning. God's word has hopefully caused distress in your soul because you're more aware of your sin before him than you were when you came in this morning. But friend, you don't need to leave with that same distress today. You can leave forgiven. You can leave washed and cleansed and justified by his grace. You can leave, as so many of us are, a new creation in Christ. If you are not a Christian Please, please, please come down during the ministry time and ask for prayer. We would love to pray for you. We'd love to introduce you to our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ. But maybe you are already a Christian today. And you are wondering whether it's even appropriate for us to feel the pain of sin this morning. Hasn't God forgiven us? Hasn't he washed us clean? Why, why would Joel, why would your pastor pray that you as a Christian would feel the pain of conviction this morning? Well, friends, the joy of forgiveness is not just a once and done sort of thing in our lives. We do not experience the joy of forgiveness only when we become Christians and then never experience it again. No, the Christian life is supposed to be marked by an ongoing experience of God's forgiveness over and over and over again. And yes, honestly, from God's word, God at times allows us as Christians to feel the sting and the pain of conviction again so that we might experience the joy of his forgiveness in even greater ways. Revelation chapter 3 verse 19, God says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. John says to a group of Christians in John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You and I have more unrighteousness still to be practically cleansed out of our lives. If we say we have not sinned or that we don't need that, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God is like a loving father 
who allows us to experience pain, not because he is judging us any longer. There is no sin in your life that has not been fully paid for by the blood of Christ, but he allows us to continue to experience pain at times because he loves us and wants to grow us in practical ways as his children. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and sanctification without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so listen, while there is, and we love this verse, while there is therefore now no condemnation because of our sins, and for those who are in Christ Jesus, we don't live condemned. But we do at times feel godly grief over our ongoing sin, and that godly grief leads to greater godliness and holiness and ultimately to greater joy. And so listen, we can pray with our Kent Hughes, may God bless us with guilt, with sorrow, and with fear. Not, not to stay in that place of, of condemnation, but to move towards repentance and fuller acceptance of God's forgiveness. Paul Tripp says, if you understand the presence and power of remaining sin in your life as a Christian, you know that confession is not a one-time transaction, but a daily lifestyle. C.G. Mahaney says that if you haven't confessed your sin within the last week, you're overdue. And so this message is not only for those who are not yet Christians and who desperately need to become Christians. No, this message is also for all of God's people. He allows us to feel the pain of conviction so that we might confess our sins and experience the joy of his forgiveness again and again. And so as Christians, friends, we should be quick to confess our sins. We, we should be eager to bring our sins into the light and to ask God for forgiveness for them and even to confess our sins before him and before those around us. So I want to invite the band to come up at this time. We're going to go back into an extended time of singing. We're going to sing the song, Lord, I Need You, and then we're going to sing Cornerstone. And then Jason is going to come and lead us through prayer and through communion, and then we're going to have a concluding song as well. But church, we wanted to give space for you to respond to the word of God this morning in your life. Would you stand with me? Friends, Redeemer, Redeemer Fellowship, Ephesians chapter 5, which is written to Christians, says that we are to bring our sins into the light and that light will dispel the darkness. Colossians chapter 3, which is written to the church, to Christians, says that we are to set our minds on the things that are above, to set our minds on Jesus, but then it says very practically, put to death what is earthly in you. Hebrews chapter 3, which is written to the church, which is written to Christians, says that we are to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin which is in each of our hearts. Psalm 51 King David, a man described as a man after God's own heart, still takes extended time to confess his sins and to seek God's forgiveness. James chapter 5, written to the church, written to Christians, says that if we confess our sins and pray for one another, that we will be healed. Clearly. The pain of conviction is not just for when we become a Christian and then no more. This is something that we must do regularly as men and women of Christ. 
And so we want to invite you to respond to the Holy Spirit this morning. We want to invite you to come forward, to, to kneel, to pray. You can do this in your seat or you can come forward. I would encourage you to come forward. There's a humility in making this visible before your church family. To respond to God's word and to confess your sins. I was praying throughout this whole message because oftentimes we have very practical application. Okay, maybe you're an angry dad. Maybe, you're a, maybe you are struggling with lust. Maybe... I, I don't necessarily have any specifics that come to mind, but I think the Lord is wanting to address you wherever you are. It might be lust. It might be anger. It might be selfishness. It might be pride towards others who hold a different perspective than you. It might be lack of affection for King Jesus and the work that he has done on your behalf. It could be any number of things. Let me encourage us all not to resist the work of the Spirit. Because the pain of conviction leads to the joy of forgiveness. And so we're going to invite you to come down as we sing. Don't delay. Please respond quickly. We will pray over you. We'll participate in communion. And if you just want to spend even more time, we will pray for you individually after that. But let's respond to the Lord now.